This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for another history episode of the podcast is the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Ward, greetings. Greetings. Good to see you again. It's been a long time. It's been 24 hours. Maybe not even that long. How about the spring weather finally, huh? April has arrived. It has. It's gorgeous, um, you know, and... uh, we shan't complain. You know, things are looking up. We're all getting vaccinated, back to normal, quote unquote. The Jack C. Taylor Conference Center is coming together very nicely. In fact, I was driving down King George and I looked down College Creek and you can see that logo from, you know, really far away now. It's really a signature really? look. Yeah. Before, as you looked over there, you know, you'd see the side of Beach Hall, but you maybe quite didn't know what it was. And now that logo just like is, is right there. That's wild. I had no idea. I'll have to check that out from um, outside the yard wall there. Um, yeah, you know, as you're driving down King George Street by the baseball mm-hmm. stadium, yep. you know, and if you, you look over, um, you know, you can see you can see the, the logo. It's beautiful. And uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to tour the, the space yet. Have you have you done a hard hat tour? I was just in Beach uh, the other week, and um, they were doing a VIP tour at the time. But I'm looking forward to doing it next time I get over there shortly. Yeah, so it's it's really incredible. If you're a regular listener, we've entreated you to look at the animated, you know, presentation of what it's going to look like. But when you walk in, particularly when you walk into the auditorium, it's bigger than it looks in that animation, and just really a world class facility. Our media center is going to be fantastic, so uh, we imagine we'll be doing more and more video stuff. We're going to grow our YouTube channel. This podcast will probably be a more of a video medium, a visual medium, as well as an audio medium going forward. So a lot of exciting stuff that's going to happen. Um, you know, we're going to be shifting the Naval Institute into the the next gear, and it's really exciting. So rough timeline. We're going to have a ribbon cutting in uh, late summer. We'll keep everybody posted. Exciting times. Yes, very exciting. So why don't we introduce our guest? Uh, that would be my pleasure. Well, today we are going to talk about a battle that happened in 1894 that very much shaped the contours of the Indo-Pacific situation in our own time. And this article shows how the uh, threads of history connect to the exigency of current events Quite uh, brilliantly, I thought. And with us to talk about this is um, Andrew Blackley. He's an independent scholar based in Ohio. Um, He has an MA in history from Norwich University, and he's presented to the McMullen Naval History Symposium, and his work has appeared in Naval Review. And we are thrilled to have him in the 
April issue of Naval History with the cover story, The Enduring Legacy of the War of Jiawu. Andy, welcome. Uh, Eric, thank you very much, Ward. It's uh, great to, to, to see you in, in person, so to speak. As I said, uh, I've been listening to the history podcasts, and, um, and I'm really pleased to be in, in very uh, august company with uh, Commander uh, B.J. Armstrong and Scott Mobley and others. Um, and I thank you for the opportunity. And uh, again, thanks to Eric and the staff at Naval History. They did a, a wonderful job on my article and I'm just um, so thrilled to, to see it. It it is really uh, gratifying. And um, this article originally was written um, for a, a, a history essay in 2018 on the challenge of China, and it was based on research that I had done on a paper I presented in 2017 at the McMullen uh, on the uh, tactical lessons taken from the Battle of Yalu by various navies in the world, and. Uh, and they were considerable. So as Eric says, this battle really has shaped the geopolitical uh, landscape of, uh, of uh, the Pacific region uh, for the last uh, uh, more than 100 years, obviously, 120 years. And it's one of those battles that when I describe it to family and friends, they have no idea what I'm talking about. I mean, most people don't even know what the Russo-Japanese War was. And so when you tell them about this battle and this war and how important it is to current events, uh, they're really taken aback. I mean, um, Japan acquired the uh, Senkaku Islands, which are currently in the news right now um, as sort of the uh, the fruits of this uh, of this of this war, as well as the the Pescadores and uh, and Formosa, now Taiwan. So and it eventually gave them a an entry into Korea put them in line with a confrontation with the Russian empire. So it's all, you know, and all those events, you just one thing tumbles after the next. It certainly was probably the last straw for the Qing dynasty as well to, to have lost this war. So it is, it is such an important event and, uh, and it deserves to have wider recognition. And certainly in China, they, they certainly talk about it today, but in a different sense. And that's what sort of got me with this article, when I when I wrote it, when doing research, was that I found this this incredible museum ship that they built and uh, and is in currently in, in Wei Hai uh, in in China, a replica of the Dingyuan, the, the flagship of the the Biyang or Northern um, Chinese fleet, and this is a, a I think a fairly accurate uh, replica. Uh, there are some plans available for the original uh, ship. Uh, but the fact that they would spend all this money recreating a ship that went down in defeat and was eventually blown up by its own crew and was and and literally went to the scrap pile um, there's they just a short segue they they are the Chinese have done some archaeology on the site where this thing was 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 grounded and they've they're salvaging a few artifacts most of the ship went, went to a scrapyard a long long time ago. So, in any event, they, this is emblematic to the to the Chinese of the the hundred years of hum, humi, humiliation that hum, excuse me humiliation that they had to go through uh, at the hands of European powers, starting with the first Opium War, and in their opinion, ending and not ending until the uh, triumph of the uh, Chinese communists in 1949. Um, so, go. So that's sort of the you know they, they view this this um, the Chinese Communist Party views 
their ascension as being the start of a new Chinese century. And, and looking back at the failures of the past is meant to uh, inspire um, them for to, to go to further, uh, greater lengths in the future. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? The idea that they build this replica museum ship that's essentially a monument to humiliation and failure. So they have that as a constant reminder to spur them on now. That's a very telling thing, I feel like, don't you think? Yes, I mean, they don't have... They don't have anything else to show for that era. Um, I mean, the, in Japan, you have the, and some of you may have seen it, the Mikasa uh, is is a museum ship uh, that uh, was allowed, thanks to, to some part, to Admiral Nimitz to be restored uh, after the Second World War. And, of course, we have the USS Constitution, which is still in commission. The Royal Navy has the victory and so on. But these are all ships that had that were victorious in battle and had a long history. Um, but this ship had... Uh, uh, it was it was an emblematic, as I said, an emblematic of a defeat, and it, and it's there really as a teaching tool uh, to reinforce the idea that the it is the Chinese Communist Party that's going to bring China back to glory. The the Qing Dynasty failed and uh, was a miserable failure, and uh, the only thing that's going to really succeed is the is the is the, is the Communist Party and their ideology to bring China back to where they they believe they should be as 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 the, their name China in Chinese means the, the central state. That's where they they believe that that's their proper place in the scheme of things to be a, in the, a to be the middle kingdom once again. So Andy, let's talk about the war itself, and let's talk about China in, in the 19th century. What was the relationship between China and Japan that caused this conflict? What was China's attitude towards a navy and and their national identity and a centralized conception of a navy and how do they get so far deficit with respect to their capability that resulted in this embarrassment? Right. Well, so you, you probably heard, you know, before the Ming Empire, there was the the, the Chinese did have a, a huge fleet that uh, sailed into the Indian Ocean and and so on. But but the I believe with the ascension of the Ming uh, Dynasty. Uh, they just, they literally destroyed all the documentation for that. They did not want to re they, they literally consciously turned their backs on the sea and sea power. Um, they had wanted nothing to do with that. They concentrated uh, only on the, their continental uh, power. And when the Qing empire a dynasty took over in 1644, a lot of their effort was actually looking at expanding uh, China into the West. So, you know, huge conquests in the Western part of China and Northern China, but nothing with the sea. The sea was just uh, coastal defense against pirates. And we talk about their relationship with Japan in this in the Ming period. The Japanese uh, refused to um, bow to to China. China, although always considered them to be a, a vassal state, and they they believed that the Japanese owed them tribute. There really was not much in the way of any kind of diplomatic relations between the two countries. Um, in fact, the Chinese referred to the Japanese uh, disparagingly as the dwarf pirates. <laughs> so they, they they did not get along. And of course, Japan closed itself off during the the Tokugawa shogunate for 250 years. They were receptive to Western technology. They wanted, you know, they they learned how to build their own uh, smoothbore cannon and muskets, uh, but they didn't want the danger of what they saw Western culture 
uh, and Western religion, what it could do to their country. So they purposely shut themselves off. And it really wasn't until the, the events of the, of the first Opium War when the British and then later the French came in with their navies and their steamships and started uh, uh, just you know, chewing up the, the Chinese junks. It, the Chinese had a, a coastal defense force that was based each province in China on the coast was, had, was responsible for its own naval force. There was no centralized navy. They never had a centralized navy. And that's why we have this this northern Biang fleet. There was a central fleet. There was a southern fleet, all headquartered in the different provinces, but they had no there was no central planning behind it, and they were viewed purely as coastal defense. And but it was when the British and the French landed troops uh, in 1860 in the Third Opium War and marched them to Peking and burned the Summer Palace. In fact. Uh, well, I was just reading this this morning to refresh my memory on this. Lord Elgin actually wanted to burn down the Forbidden City, but was talked out of it. Um, so they settled on destroying the Summer Palace, which is still considered an outrage today. So the result of that was that the the Chinese, um, and really under the leadership of uh, Li Hongzhang, who was the Viceroy of Northern China, they they knew that in order to meet this threat that they had to start modernizing. And he was one of the proponents of... Uh, something called the self-strengthening movement where they wanted to build an industry and they started buying technology. They started going on. He literally went on a shopping trip in Europe, buying up cruisers and bat and the, the two main battleships that were, uh, that were in their fleet. And he was enlisting European advisors to come, but unfortunately they never really, uh, centralized the planning. They never took into, um, any sort of cultural, change the way the Japanese did. The Japanese were always interested in Western philosophy and science. The Japanese were interested in, in Western science. They just didn't want Western culture, per se. And it wasn't until Matthew Perry came in and kind of opened the door forcefully uh, with the threat of military uh, action that if you don't open yourselves to trade, we're going to, you're, you know, you're going to pay the price. And they also... Uh, there was the British Royal Navy bombarded uh, Kagoshima uh, in southern Japan in 1863. So these things came struck home and pretty much led to the what's called the Meiji Restoration, where the shogun was finally forced out and the new emperor, the emperor was restored to his proper place. And they sort of had this wholesale reorganization of their of uh, of their country to um to adopt Western technology and at least some of the forms of Western, I don't want to say democracy, but government, you know, having a, an elected diet and so on. Um, and they, they reformed their army along the lines of the German army and their Navy along the lines of the British Navy. And they started acquiring ships as fast as they could, but they also were pretty resource poor. So a lot of the ships that they acquired were, of, uh, were, were cruisers rather than battleships. The Chinese, again, you know, they invested heavily uh, in the 1880s in, in buying as much modern uh, technology as they could. But then later on, you know, because naval technology was, was changing so rapidly uh, in the late 1880s and the 1890s, they didn't reinvest uh, in, the, in the technology. And, and that really hurt them during the war. Another thing you point out that is really a, a, an, a striking contrast between Japan and China, and this is the, the command of the fleets. The Japanese have 
um, adapted to Western technological advances while retaining their Japan culturalness, if you will. But um, they have officers and crews that are actually trained up and are strictly naval trained, whereas China was using um, army officers and putting them on ships, and there's no, no sense of the same command structure at all. Um, you talk about that in the article. I think that's a very striking difference between the two. They're both trying to westernize just enough, yet they're not doing it equally successfully, it seems like. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, it goes back to the fact that the, the Qing dynasty was sort of, if you will, a foreign dynasty. Uh, they were the Manchu were from northern China. They were not ethnically Han Chinese. It's sort of I don't know what the what the analogy would be in the West, but it'd be sort of if the if the Vikings had marched into Rome and took over Rome and said now we're now we're running the place. Um, it, that sort of the sort of cultural difference between the two. So the Manchu organized things militarily much differently, and they wanted it decentralized because they didn't want to build up have anyone in any particular province have a power center located away from the capital. Uh, so they very much wanted a decentralized uh, command. And, you know, um, they didn't see the outside world as threatening until it was too late. Uh, and then they, they just were not able to, to reorganize themselves successfully uh, to, to fend off uh, the European powers and in, in particular the Japanese. I mean, so initially the Japanese felt very threatened when the, the Chinese acquired these two battleships from, from Germany. This was on the heels of, the, of what was called the Sino-Franco War, which took place in the mid-1880s, sort of over control of, of how France would control uh, Indochina. They, the Chinese considered Vietnam to be a vassal state, and they weren't going to let that go without a fight. Well, the French uh, defeated uh, southern uh, Chinese fleets. And again, this is an old antagonism. The northern fleet Nobody came from the north to help the south. And during this war, no one from the south really came to help the north. So these, these fleets were fighting as almost as independent entities. Uh, they weren't, even though they were part of the same empire, they were never helping each other. The battle itself um, comes off very one-sided as a result of some of these distinctions, these, I guess, cultural differences between how China and Japan are evolving, wouldn't you say? The actual battle itself unfolds along those lines to an extent. Oh, for sure. I mean, so the... the as you say, the, the Japanese had developed a professional officer corps that had been trained. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of these uh, their officers had been, you know, in the Japanese Navy for already for 20 or 30 years since it's, really since its founding. Whereas the Chinese officers uh, were from southern China. Their commander was, as, as you say, a, a Manchu cavalry general uh, who had no naval experience whatsoever, uh, and then sort of to insulate themselves against failure, they brought in Western advisors at the last minute. I mean, these, these uh, gentlemen were brought in uh, in just like a month before the, before the war actually started. So they really were, were doing things at the, very, at the very last moment. They'd hoped that they could avoid the war, and they were not able to do that. So the, on paper, the Chinese fleet was superior to the Japanese fleet. And in reality, if they had been trained properly – if they had the, the correct ammunition um, and the right tactical orders and were trained to use that, they probably could have defeated the Japanese. But the other thing that the Japanese had going for them, in addition to professionalism, they also had two other, they had broken the Imperial Chinese Code. So they were listening to the, to the telegraphic 
uh, information going um, between uh, Peking and and their and their military outposts. They also had a network of spies in the country, um, and they knew they had a, a spy actually in the arsenal where the ammunition was being uh, produced for the fleet, and they knew very well in advance the poor condition of the of the Chinese fleet, and I think that it entered into their decision uh, to begin the war at that at this time. It was facilitated by events in Korea. There was a a peasant revolt going on in Korea, and both China and Japan were sending troops there under a previous agreement to to sort of quote unquote help the Korean uh, uh, king to to put down this revolt. But in reality, they both were trying to control uh, Korea, and you know Japan had had designs on Korea going back to the to the 16th century. On page 15, there's an interesting map and and an image that certainly Academy grads will recognize the name Philo McGiffin. Um, As you say, his name is associated with numerous Naval Academy, quote-unquote, urban legends. And I don't know how many actually know this part of his story. He looks pretty beat up, (laughs) literally, in this image. Uh, he's, He's been severely wounded in the battle, but he drew a... Uh, rendering of the the progression of the battle. Uh, that's really interesting. Talk about what Philo McGiffin's role was, because he was kind of like an early exchange officer on this ironclad. Well, he, he was more than that. He actually, you know, he was in the academy class of, of 1884, and Congress only uh, gave um, uh, authorization for, I think, 13 commissioned officers that year, and he didn't make the cut. Uh, he had completed, I think, a two-year cruise as a midshipman, but he was not commissioned by Congress as an ensign. So he was had spent all his time and was without a job. So he actually went willingly to China during this this French, the Sino-Franco War in in the mid 1880s, and he met with Li Hongzhang and volunteered to help the Northern Fleet. And he was hired then as a naval instructor. Uh, because of his excellent education that he'd gotten at the academy, you know he was an expert on, at the time for on navigation and mathematics, uh, and he was able to then impart that knowledge to the uh, cadets at the naval at the at the Chinese Naval Academy. And so he was brought in, like I say, at, at the last minute as a as an advisor, as the co-executive officer, not the commander, or the, what we what the Navy would call a commander, the the uh, the first uh, the first officer. He was there to advise the captain of the Chen Yuan, which is which was one of the two Chinese battleships. The other, uh, the flagship, the, the Ding Yuan, had on board the uh, the Chinese admiral Admiral Deng and a German advisor Konstantin von Hanneken, who was a Prussian artillery expert. Again, he was he, he was heroic in the Franco-Prussian War, but he had no naval experience, but he knew his artillery, and then. The naval expert on that ship was William F. Tyler, who was a, uh, what the British would call a sub-lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant J.G., uh, in the Royal Navy Reserve. And he actually had a lot of deck experience as a deck officer on an Imperial Customs Cutter uh, in the years preceding us. So he probably had the most realistic experience in ship handling. But the real purpose for these three gentlemen on these ships was to provide cover for, the, for their Chinese officers. So in the event of failure... They could point to the uh, Peking and say, "Hey, it wasn't our fault. It was these three guys that that 
you gave us. It's their fault. So back to Philo McGiffin, he got those those wounds when he was um, putting out a fire on the on the Chen Yuan. He took it upon himself to you know there was a fire raging in the in the forecastle of the of of his ship where there was a, tor- a torpedo uh, launching uh, a torpedo tube, but it was above. It was above the waterline. This was in a compartment, unarmored compartment above the waterline. And if that fire had reached that, that would have blown the front of the ship right off. So he knew how important it was. He went to put those fires out, and then he was caught in the muzzle blast of one of the big uh, 12-inch Krupp guns. And and he also was, I mean, you see pictures of these Chinese ironclads after the battle. They're just peppered with holes. I mean, it was incredible that you know, that uh, the superstructures on these ships are just, you know, they look like, you know, they look like a hit with a shotgun blast. They were just, it was thanks to their armor, however, that, that enabled them to, to survive the battle. So, you know, Philo McGiffin, um, he survived the battle. Obviously, you can see the picture there. He actually met with William S. Sims, who was a lieutenant at the time, uh, mm-hmm. there to watch this war and gather naval intelligence. And he, and Sims interviewed McGiffin after the battle. And so, McGiffin went on was taken care of in the in the sick bay of the of the uh, of the U.S. Uh, naval ship there, and he eventually went right back to the United States. Uh, he was he did not participate in the following the Battle of Weihai Wei, the the siege of uh, of the of the Chinese naval base that really ended the war. Well, we'll remind the listeners that in fact this is covered in, in Trent Hone's book, Learning War, that uh, Sims kind of created the. U.S. Navy's schoolhouse construct with the gunnery school up in Newport, and in the process, more or less created the procurement system that we deal with today. Um, you know, Ford Motor Company made the gun site. Ford went to William Sims and said, hey, just give us the money. And we'll take care of everything. And he said, that's a bad idea. Um, we want government oversight. So, And Sims, very active in the pages of proceedings uh, at the turn of the century as well. Right. I'll just say with Sims was when he was on the China station, that's when uh, um, he really learned all, all the um, um, the lessons of gunnery uh, from the British. And he took those lessons and incorporated them uh, into training for the uh, for the U.S. Navy. Philo McGiffin um, survived the Battle of Yalu River, but uh, there's wounds he never quite all the way recovered from, did he? No, he did not. Unfortunately, he he had uh, shrapnel behind his eye, and it would, and they could not remove it. And he was under such intense pain that he eventually committed suicide. Sad end, but a legendary figure in Annapolis. I, I know you talked to David Poyer a while ago about his his book about the return of Philo T. McGiffin, which I've of course I've read, and <laughs> so it was, it was interesting. You know, this is he's supposed. I don't know if he's supposed to be a. a I just, you know, he's person. I think he's supposed to be part of the the McGiffin family, and he comes to the Naval Academy in the 1970s when it was particularly a tough place to to matriculate from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, some of the lessons that came out of this out of this battle and out of this war, um, you know, in the the cover, I want to mention the cover art that's in this edition. Um, it shows two cruisers uh, duking it out. The the Japanese cruisers, the Naniwa. And the Chinese cruiser is the Jingyuan. These are both uh, cruisers built uh, in England uh, by William Armstrong and company. They were built almost at the same time, uh, very comparable to each other. 
Uh, whether you know it or not, in that picture, the future Admiral Togo is on the bridge. He was the commander of the Naniwa. And so these, this ship, the Chinese ship in the picture actually did survive the battle, but it's, it had, there was a sister ship that's very famous, uh, in Chinese, in current Chinese, um, history. The commander of that ship turned to try to attempt to ram the Japanese fleet. And ramming was one of these tactics that these ships were, were built to, to do, basically. They had, they had these rams built into the bow and they were supposed to be able to ram each other. Well, the downfall of that was that uh, as the, the Chinese uh, cruiser approached the Japanese fleet, it, uh, it got hit in the bow area where one of these above waterline torpedoes was at, and it blew the front of the ship off, and the ship sank very quickly. Um, but this, is, this, is, this was, and it still is, uh, portrayed by um, China today as, as this act of uh, heroism on the part of the captain to, to, to charge the, the the Japanese fleet at a point when they were, the battle was nearly over and they were clearly being defeated, but he went down fighting. So that's the important point is that he went down fighting the Japanese aggressor. There's a real sense in China today, a naval expansionist China today, that there's a, a sense of never again. And they look back on the first Sino-Japanese war and the humiliating defeat at the Yalu to fuel that. And I think it's clear from your piece how much that has shaped uh, Chinese navalist thinking in our time. But what's interesting, it's interesting, isn't how one of their fatal flaws back then was they had army officers on naval ships. And their concept on that to this day, I know they train much more specifically than they ever would have been, but it's still technically, taxonomically, the People's Liberation Army Navy. They still see it somehow as secondary to army which in their mind, they're a land force, but when they, re they want to re-grab that ancient Chinese seafaring glory or something, but they still call it the army slash navy. Well, right. Well, so in their current, you know, I think I cite one of their uh, current white papers that they're saying now that we're, we're going to move, we're, we're going to uh, go out into the blue water area now and, and make that an area that we need to, to uh, defend. So it's, it's more about, you know, it, to them, it's always, a, they portray it as defense, that they're de really defending their national interest. So, you know, however, that's their interpretation of it. So the, their defense of their national interest means that they can start pushing into the first island chain wherever they want to. So they, they are very much um, going back to the end of this war and the treaty that ended this war that gave Japan uh, some of these first, uh, these islands, the Kinkakus and the Pescadores, they challenge that and saying that that's not legitimate. Those are still, those still belong to China. That, um, you know, the, the treaty that ended the Second World War, the People's Republic of, was not a, I don't believe it was a signatory to that, that treaty. It was actually signed in like 1952. And so, the, you know, they could, the, the Chinese potentially could claim Okinawa because that was once the, these island chains that Okinawa is in the Ryukyu Islands was once considered to be a vassal state of China as well. So they could go back and use history selectively to their own end and say, hey, you know, these areas were once part of the Chinese domain and they, they sh should be so again. So, Andy, clearly this article shows how Chinese naval thinking today has been molded by their defeat of yesteryear, as talked about in the magazine, this issue. That's the lessons they take from it, sort of the... Uh, cautionary lessons of that. What lessons should the West take 
when looking at the Chinese naval thinking and why it's based on this um, earlier sense of defeat that they must never endure again. What does that show us about their psychology, if you will, of war? Well, uh, it points to the danger of anytime you have a, um, an authoritarian regime, uh, they can't possibly tolerate being wrong or, or being defeated. So, you know, if the Chinese Navy should be engaged in a, in a fight with the U.S. Navy, would it possibly just keep accelerating to the point where they're going to win no matter what? And, you know, how far will that acceleration go before uh, it ends up in, uh, in all-out uh, nuclear warfare? I mean, so, you know, I know that you've – that uh, one of Poyer has a series on, on, a, on, the, on, a, on a Chinese war, and uh, you know, there are other books on the, the, the War of uh, 2034 – by Admiral Stavridis that on this topic, then they, they sort of they don't ever quite get to that point where things really, you know, go, go, go bad in a big way. But that's the possibility that, uh, you know, China, they viewed Taiwan as a breakaway province that is legitimately part of China. And that that's part of their goal is to reacquire it before their cent- their centennial of the, of the uh, revolution of uh, in 2049. So that's really the, the question. So I think that the lessons that the that the that the Chinese will have taken away from this war is that there's it's imperative that they have a naval force that is highly trained, that has the best available technology, and the correct number of ships, and the ability to defeat any enemy that comes up against them, even though they don't have any a history of a successful history of naval warfare like the United States Navy, they are still going to I think going to be a formidable foe if it ever comes to that, and I, I sincerely hope it doesn't come to that. As you know, Admiral Stavridis has said, it's we need to um, cooperate with them where we can and confront them where we cannot. And I think it's important that that we do that intelligently and realize that a defeat for them is probably out of you know intolerable. So that's the scary thought. So the article is The Enduring Legacy of the War of Jiawu. The author is Andrew Blackley. Andrew, thank you for coming on the Proceedings Podcast today. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks, Andy. Great to see you. Thank you very much. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.